0: So it's just a scheme, that's all it was, was an easy scheme. I'm sitting in my car, he pulls in, gets out to come to my car, undercover cop comes pulling in, he runs away with the drugs. I sat in my car as part of this. We pulled it off, the feds went to one of the kids' houses, kid we knew and grew up with, put pressure on him. He agreed to cooperate. When I got arrested, I would not cooperate. They wanted me to tell and I wouldn't I wouldn't say a word. So the only opportunity I had was to go to trial. In
1: 2006, a seasoned Boston street guy on the road to going legit and reeling from a recent personal loss, agrees to help a friend pull one last job. A job like so many others in the past, but instead of a token of gratitude or an apology for putting him at risk, What he gets is betrayed and thrown upon the mercy of a judicial system spun out of control. This is the extraordinary story of Anthony Bucci.
0: Infinity Crew, my novel. It's a Vinnie Bruno novel. It's about young kids that meet at juvie. They become a chosen crew. They're all different races. And they go on to become like family. They all have each other's backs. They have a bond that's unbreakable. And it doesn't matter. Color is not important. What they see in each other is solidarity. And like I said, there's a Spanish kid, there's a Mexican kid, there's a black kid, there's an Irish kid, and there's an Italian. That's the Infinity Crew. They go to Juvie, they become friends in Juvie, everybody has a certain skill set. They go on to commit sophisticated crimes. They have rivals, the Italian mob, the Russians. You know, it's a love story too. It's a great read. It's everything you want in a book in one giant novel.
1: It is too, and I gotta say, the mark of a good book is I think about your book every day since I've read it. And in the two weeks I did read it, I got up and I had something to look forward to. But I always make that time And I couldn't wait to get back to Infinity Crew and get through its stuff. But I think about the characters still, and that's the great thing is there's gonna be more, and you really set it up where there needs to be more. It it was great, and I I, gotta say, it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. Really loved it, and I can't wait for more. The blindfold on Lady Justice is said to have appeared in the 16th century. To most of us in modern times, it is thought to represent the impartiality and the fairness of law. Administered without favor, regardless of politics, wealth, fame, or prejudice. But if one digs deeper into its true history, they would find that her blindfold represented a judicial system turning a blind eye to abuse and ignorance to certain aspects and tactics of law enforcement, particularly regarding prosecution and sentencing. This irony was not lost upon inmate number 21416-038, also known as the novelist Anthony Bucci.
0: And the next thing you know, the jury comes out. I thought I was going to win the case.
1: The Urban Dictionary has defined a term to describe the process of making a person extraordinary.
0: In a loud voice, I was found guilty on all counts.
1: A traumatic trial by fire that will define not only their future, but the essence of who and what they are to become.
0: Bank robbers, murderers, pedophiles, rapists, more time than all of those because I kept my mouth shut.
1: I'm William Crooks, and this is Extraordination.
0: My name is Anthony Bocci. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, the mean streets of Boston, October of 1962. We lived in a three-family home, there was only two floors lived in at the time. My grandparents lived on the first floor and we lived on the second floor. It was me, my sister, my mom, my dad, four of us that lived in this apartment. The third floor was left open because, you know, he was so volatile. My earliest childhood memory, I'd have to say, is my father. He was a raging alcoholic, coming home drunk, many, many a night and putting his hands on my mother and myself when I used to jump in and help her. My father would come home after working at the New Yorker. It was a club he partially owned, and he would yell and scream at my mother if she didn't have food ready for him. And mind you, it's like three o'clock in the morning if she ever fell asleep and she wasn't waiting on him hand and foot. It was a bad scene. He would start yelling. He was a kind of guy that would actually foam from the mouth when he got upset. So what I would do was wake up and try to help my mother and he would throw me around. i have been thrown around. I had stitches in my head. That was a really rough childhood. And my grandparents, they would hear my father yelling and screaming, but you know, they were actually afraid of him too. So the way things went was everybody would pray that my dad would come home and he'd be in a good mood. To this day, at my age, I still cannot sleep in total darkness. I have that trauma I live with every day. It molded me for many, many years. What happened was, before I started school, my mother had had enough. She called the state police while my dad was at work and we left via a state police escort. I was about six, seven years old. My mother had $60 in her pocket. The state police took us to my uncle's house we never told him where we were. He was looking for us, but there was no vehicle. And we would, I would sleep on the floor, my sister would sleep on the floor, and that's how things went until my mother, who worked three jobs, got enough money to get us in our own apartment. My dad, after a couple weeks, he was okay with it and he didn't bother us anymore. He had more time to do his dirty work without us around. Seemed to me like my dad was glad we were gone. He could do his own thing, and he branched out. He was, like I said, a very violent guy. He was also a muscle for a mob in Boston, so I know he was somebody that hurt a lot of people. He owned a six-family house in Rivian. When people didn't pay rent, he would get very nasty. One guy he actually beat up right in front of me. He was road rage. He would beat up his friends when he was drunk. He's done a lot of that and right in front of me. And this is just one example of how he was. When I was actually visiting my father, it was Christmas time. I never wanted to go with him before that because, you know, he was such a vicious guy and bad temper. And I was actually afraid of him. But my mother would make me go. When I was about 10 years old, my father gave me a bike for Christmas and it got taken from me. I went home. I had a black eye, he said, what happened? I said, the kid took my bike that you gave me for Christmas. I was expecting my father to say, okay, come on, let's go and go to the kid's house and talk to the father, go through the usual channels. But my dad pulled out an 18-inch, small little commemorative baseball bat like the Red Sox have, where they give to fans on baseball bat night. He gave it to me and he said, hey, listen, you're gonna go get that. And if you don't get your bike back, I'm gonna hurt you a lot worse than he did. And here's what I want you to do." And he went on to instruct me, I want you to hit him as hard as he can on the bridge of his nose and get your bike back. Don't come home without it. So I went out, I found the kid, he had a paper route. He was sitting on a curb with my bike with his paper route bag around his shoulder. I walked up to him. He said, are you here for another beat? And I said, no, man, I just want to talk. Can I please have my bike back? My dad gave it to me for Christmas. And when he started to get up, I did exactly what my father said. I cracked him right over his nose. I broke his nose. Blood was everywhere. He had his paper route money. It fell on the ground. I doubled back. I looked at him. He was all bent over, crunched over, and you broke my nose. And I said, yeah, and I'm taking your money, too. And I bent down, and I took his paper route money, and I left. It just changed my life from that point on. I, I thought I was invincible. I loved the thrill of what I did, the thrill, that excitement, the power. It took me down a path that I was down for years. At that point, my whole opinion of my father changed. He was no longer this vicious animal to me. He was actually a guy that taught me to protect myself and to stand up for myself at all costs. I thought it's a dog-eat-dog world. The strong survive. My father was actually doing me a favor, teaching me to be tough, teaching me to be vicious, because it's a vicious world, as he would say, so only the strong survive. I looked at myself as the strong, and I did a lot of bullying for years to come. My father moved away to Cleveland, and before he left, he Said I want you to spend a lot of time with your cousin. My cousin was a mobster out of sh- Chicago mob. He was back and forth from Las Vegas. His name was William Folpiano. They called him Floppy. He ran money to Switzerland for Maya Lansky. He dated Anne Margaret. His friends were all Hollywood movie stars. His dear friend was Rodney Dangerfield, who would always come to Boston. So. I was enthralled with the lifestyle, I was just like I fell in love. I had the power, I had my cousin around me, and I was picking up envelopes in the north end of Boston. People were betting, and they would give envelopes, and or they were doing the lottery and the number. I would pick up those envelopes, and you know if anybody didn't pay, my cousin would step in and, and get really violent right in front of me, and it was like nothing. To me at the time, 10, 11, 12 years old, it was just like a common thing to see my cousin snap, break somebody's head, because he was a very, he was a professional boxer too. It was just part of my life, and I was growing up the fast lane. I dressed differently than all the kids at school. I would be dressing with a skullie cap on, nice slacks and dress shirts, while other kids had like the law sweatshirt suits back then, or jeans, and I was always looking sharp, dapper. You know, I was living what I thought was the life. The first job I can ever remember doing legally, I was a laborer in the union, lugging bricks up and down the stairs, and I was just like, nah, this isn't for me. Like as they say in Bronx Bronxville, the working man's a sucker. So I quit that right away and went back to like the numbers and running things. And, you know, I graduated as I got older to breaking into sanctioned houses where they had a safe or they had money and a lot of inside jobs that my cousin would send me to and, you know, I would earn my bones that way. The first assignment I had for my cousin and my dad or whoever, because they all got a piece was it was a guy carrying money to his car. And here I am, 12, 13 years old, and I walked up to him incognito. He just probably looked at me like I was nothing, and I took his legs off with a baseball bat, took his bag full of money, and ran away. Back when I was young, my relationship with my sister was I idolized my sister. She was my world. She was everything to me, and she tried to stop me from going on the path I was going down, but everything i did i would buy her nice stuff and it continued for a long long time i started running the streets and doing work for my cousin and his friends i would skip school a lot that became a problem that actually escalated when i went to junior high school my mother was told i was going to flunk school so what happened is i had to play a certain sport and just take out people from the other team that were uh, very good. So coach would just tell me, take him out. And that was what I did. I was a big kid in junior high school. I was physically imposing. I was bigger than everybody else. I was on a different wavelength as everybody else. Kids were like fighting when I would hit them with a weapon. Kids were talking, I'm swinging. It was like night and day and that's how it was. I would not describe myself as a bully because I did stick up for a lot of the weaker kids in school that would get picked on, but that came with a price. Young kids that were getting picked on by the older kids and they were like trying to extort them for lunch money and that actually I felt like I was like a Robin Hood. I would stick up for the weak, but they had to pay. So I would stick up for young kids in school because I was big and physically imposing and I would charge them what I would call rent money. If you wanted to stay in one piece, you'd have to pay me rent once a month. Give me some money and I'll protect you. And that's what I did when I was in middle school and into junior high school. Yeah, protecting kids back in the day was a lot of work because there was a lot of weak kids. And what I would do is protect the weak and then the tough guys that thought they were tough guys, I would show them they weren't so tough. I would make them pay me too. So I had a great run as far as the law went. First brush I had with the law was I was at a nightclub and I did not party, I did not do drugs. And I was with some guys, older kids that were doing cocaine. And they were doing it off the console of my car. And I was drinking. I was underage, but I was drinking, and it was like 18 or over club. And I passed out at the driver's seat. My key was not in the ignition, thank God. And a cop opened the door. And when he did, the kid who was in my passenger seat brushed the coke on the floor. And the cop seen him do it. And because I was the driver of the vehicle, he made me responsible and he pulled me out of the car and he goes i know you weren't driving i know you didn't have the key in the ignition but the coke was being done in your car and if you don't tell us who has the coke and who was doing it you're going to jail and i would not tell him who it was and i went to jail and they charged me with like 0.1 or 0.2 grams of cocaine and they put me under protective custody because i was drinking underage i spent the night in jail and when the cop got slick with me, I said to the cop, you better be careful, buddy, because he was putting his hands on me. You don't know who my dad is. So when the police report came out and it said, you don't want to mess with my dad, my father read the police report and what a beating he gave me. he said, don't you ever, ever make a statement when you get arrested, you keep your mouth shut, you ask for a lawyer, you never say a word. He thought I'd bring him heat. And he was so mad, he knocked me around real good. And from that day on, every time I ever got arrested, i get my mouth shut and just lawyer up immediately. Something that's not done nowadays. So I got a great lawyer. I got a continuance without a finding on this charge. And if I didn't get any more trouble, it would go away. And that's exactly what happened. I stayed out of trouble for a year. And this charge got dropped. But I had other brushes with the law after that. I had beat up people. I had a drunken driving charge. I beat a trial. I had uh, threats to kill, beat, kicking somebody, you know, assault with a dangerous weapon. I went to court and I went to trial four times and I beat every single case. I had a really good lawyer, a friend of my father's, and I kept my record clean. As I was young and coming up, I had lifeblood of canones, as they say, and I was rolling in money, dressing great, driving nice cars. I got married when I was 23 years old. I met my wife, she worked at a bank. She was beautiful. I wanted to say hello to her. So I had some friends, you know, introduce me and we ended up going out and it was it was like out of a storybook probably after we had been dating for like a year. She was four years younger than me. And, you know, I, I was young. I hadn't had that many girlfriends because I was too busy living the life of crime. So, you know, I was smitten. I got her pregnant and I wanted to do the right thing. And so we got married and I had a daughter like six months after we were married i had three daughters when i was in my early 20s that was important to me family life was important i thought being a good dad and being a good father meant providing for my family and they had the best of clothes and cars and beautiful house and that kind of thing but at the time you know she loved the money and the notoriety and the respect i got and and the life i was living she knew i wasn't working nine to five the less she knew the better you know, especially a woman, you never put a woman in harm's way, so. I didn't at that point get what really was important. I thought, because of the way I was brought up, that a tough guy is a guy that provides for his family. You know, I later found out what a real tough guy was. So, growing up, my kids had the best of everything. and Everything, to me, was great at, at the time. Uh, living the high life. And in my early years of marriage, I was home a lot and I was, you know, really doing the right thing for for many years, probably for six or seven years. And then I started traveling across the country, going to see my cousin in Vegas again. And, you know, things got out of control. So when I was married, I ended up traveling to Vegas to go see my cousin. And then I made a connection out there from marijuana and I started smuggling marijuana from California to Boston. And I was pretty good at it. I had hidden compartments in different vehicles. And I was making a lot of money, a lot of money. I would get marijuana for like 300 in California, smuggle it back and get like 1100 in Boston. So, you know, when you're doing four or five hundred pounds a month, it adds up. You know, I was making a couple hundred thousand a month back then. So it was good. Every life was good, you know, and uh, I was paying tribute to the right people and uh, everybody was happy. The way my mind was working back then was, you know, I'm going to continue with marijuana it's, to me, it's it's it wasn't even really a drug that was hurting people, so I didn't feel bad about it. So I figured I would just run its course. You know, when I got enough money, then I would just branch into real estate and fade off into the sunset. When I was on the street in Boston, I had my own crew, dear friends, but I had responsibilities, things I had to do and make sure were done for my cousin and his crew, his friends and that's what i was doing back then there was hijacking trucks getting inside jobs on like say a truckload of sneakers or ski boots stuff that was lucrative that guys wanted and then i would get bring them to his fence and you know everybody would make money my closest people were my family i really didn't trust people that much i was taught by my dad trust nobody and I should have listened more. When I got arrested, it was 1997, January 10th. I got arrested for conspiracy to distribute marijuana. I had two friends of mine who were getting pot shipped up from California at the time, and they got a truckload shipped up of like 800 pounds or something, and their connection dropped it off at a hotel parking lot. And my friend was afraid to go get it. He just had a bad feeling. So he goes, if you go get it, I'll take care of you. So Anthony, not being afraid of anything, jumped in the truck, drove out of the parking lot and bring them the truck full of weed. I took the 180 pounds of pot. I sold it to one guy. And about a year later, my friends branched into cocaine. They got caught buying five kilos of cocaine in a reverse thing. They told on me for driving the pot a year before that, and the guy that I sold 180 pounds to also got arrested in the meantime. So they had the perfect case. These two guys told that I drove a truck out of a parking lot, and they gave me 180 pounds apart. and my other, who I thought was my friend, told them that he bought 180 pounds apart from me. So it was an old case. It was over a year old. They had zero physical evidence, but what happened was they threatened to indict my mother for money laundering because they hit her safety deposit box and she had cash in there. And one of the informants who was a dear friend of mine said that my mom kept cash for me in a safety deposit box. So when they took that, they threatened to indict her and that's the only reason I pled guilty. I was held in federal prison without an indictment, because they were trying to get me to roll on some certain guys that they believed did some bad stuff. And when they knew I would not tell on them, I finally got indicted in October of 98. But they held me for like 10, 11 months trying to break me, but they couldn't. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know anything about what they wanted me to tell on. But even so, I still wouldn't have told. So, I got charged and indicted in October of 1998. I spent 13 months in solitary confinement pre-trial because I grabbed a prison guard and put him on the ground because he put his hands on me. So I was in solitary confinement, 24 hour lockdown for 13 months. And before I got shipped into the federal prison system, I lost like 80 pounds in the hole in the shoe. The guys that told on me, they were looking at 10 year mandatory minimums. They each got under five years. And the guy that said I bought him a pot, he was looking at a state charge. It was like a five or seven Mando, and he got like 13 months. So everybody benefited, and Anthony went to prison because he keeps his mouth shut. Never seen any of these guys ever again. It was definitely for the better. So I went to the feds in 1998. I started in Oldersville, Medium, and that's in New York. I had a record, but zero convictions. So I made my way down to a camp real quick and I was going to do a drug program and save 10 months of prison time. So time went by quick. It was club fed back then. We were getting street food, we were getting booze, cigars, you name it. That's when prison time was a piece of cake. My last prison I went to was Allenwood prison in Pennsylvania. When I was away, my mom would bring my kids to see me. She would drive them down to Pennsylvania and stuff. And you know, it was such a nice place that the deer actually came up to you on a visit and my kids could feed them apples. Kids would look forward to coming to see yeah, and feed the deers. But at that point in time, I thought I was a really good father because I was providing and I was, you know, giving them the best of everything. And it did bother me that I was away and they had to come visit me there, but I Thought because I did so much for them and you know that it was you know I was okay it was you know I was doing the right thing so when I went into prison it was like crime school for me I made connections I made friends did my time got people's phone numbers guys from all over the country and basically I networked and I came out with my doctorate in smuggling I hit the ground running when I got out in 2000, and I was right back into the game. My wife had divorced me while I was in prison, so I was single. I had all the time in the world. That little slap on the wrist prison sentence did nothing for me. Everything was natural to me. I just, you know, the way I was brought up, everything was copaesthetic. This is how it was supposed to be. I got out of prison in 2000. I made some connections. I dabbled for like a year in the game, I made some serious money, and then I ventured into real estate. And I was killing it in real estate, and I was doing the right thing as far as not selling drugs anymore. So like I said, I got out, I got into real estate game, In I was out from June 2000 to 2004, basically three and a half years before I got arrested again. And in that time, I met another woman I had a son, so now I had four kids, because I had three kids by my first wife. I got married again, I had a son. I had six houses that I owned myself, multi-families that I was in the middle of fixing up. I was partners on building a six-house subdivision. Life was great, I had plenty of money, and then my sister had gone to the doctor. And she said, I have something You know, I need to tell the family. My sister got diagnosed with cancer. She had it when she was very young, and we thought she'd beat it. She came, met with me, my mom, and she told us that the cancer had come back. It was stage three at the time, and it was in her stomach, starting in her lungs, and and it had spread through her body and they gave her less than three years to live in 2001. We went to multiple doctors, but that was the consensus. I visited my sister all the time, all the time. We I talked to her every day. I had a pizza restaurant in in Melrose I used to make like $5,000 a week at it. She used to rent it for me and I just gave it to her. I went and I bought her a new car. She never had a new car, she was so happy. So I bought her a brand new uh, SUV. I gave her the pizza shop. I wanted her years that she had left to be good. And as she progressed, I started using drugs because they put her on an oxygen machine and I couldn't take it watching this. I started using drugs because I was torn apart because of my sister and it ruined me. At this time, my father was living in New Jersey and he was coming back and forth to Boston and my sister would go visit them. They remained very close. She, my sister was his favorite, so you know, he took it really, really hard to. So from 2000 to 2004, she battled cancer. I had gotten married. I had a son. I quit the drug game and then in 2003 i was using cocaine heavily and a friend of mine wanted to rob a drug dealer who was dealt cocaine to his brother and i said why not you know instead of buying it i'll just take it so what happened was i told my friend don't say nothing to this kid on the phone order some kilos of cocaine and i'll take it from him we put together a scheme we had a friend of ours who was an undercover cop was knowingly in the crew, guy we had known. And we robbed the drug dealer for three kilos of cocaine. His phone was tapped, my friend didn't listen to me, and nine surveillance teams of federal agents watched the drug deal go down. But they didn't arrest us that day because the scheme was bring the kid to meet me at a hospital parking lot. And when our other friend pulls into the parking lot with his undercover cruiser and the lights on, jump the guardrail, run down a hill into a getaway car and take off and let's make it look like you ran away and dumped the drugs. So it's just a scheme. That's all it was, was an easy scheme. I'm sitting in my car, he pulls in, gets out to come to my car, undercover cop comes pulling in, he runs away with the drugs. That was the crime I, I committed. I sat in my car as part of this, and we pulled it off. The feds went to one of the kid's houses, put pressure on him. He agreed to cooperate. Kid we knew and grew up with, and he wore a body wire on the cop who implicated me in the body wire and himself, and then because when I got arrested, I would not cooperate because they really wanted this cop in the police force he worked for. And this kid had told them that they had given me fake search warrants in the past before I got arrested the first time. So they wanted me to tell and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a word. The only opportunity I had was to go to trial because they would not offer me a plea deal. So I went to trial. I had never gone to trial in federal court. And it is an experience. You walk into federal court, you look up the ceiling, it's like 15, 20 feet high. There you call the case, United States of America versus Anthony Bucci. It's like me versus the United States of America. I robbed a drug dealer that was selling drugs to my friend's brother. And here I am listening to this and I'm like, oh no, here I am taking on the United States of America who has unlimited attorneys, unlimited power, resources. It was like a nightmare. I had no chance. It was like so intimidating. It was just an experience I want to forget. It was brutal. The littlest thing they twisted They made molehills into mountains. Like I said, they had no evidence against me other than a body wire. And when I got arrested, I had some cocaine on me. Like I said, I was using cocaine. And I had cocaine on me for personal use. So what they did is they put a picture of the vehicle I was driving in Vegas up on the screen. I was driving a beautiful car, a Bentley. They had a black Bentley up on the screen. I was walking out of the MGM Casino, going to my car. There was a girl leaning on my car, very beautiful girl. They had it up on the screen and it was like, this is what a drug dealer drives. Meanwhile, there was none of that going on. It was my friend from Vegas's car and he would let me use it when I went in town. They painted this picture that wasn't even true but it was very convincing the judge ruled that the jury could listen to the body wire but not use it against me so i was implicated on a body wire and the judge instructed the jury not to use it against me well that was the only evidence they had against me and the next thing you know the juries comes out and i had jurors actually wink at me so i thought i was going to win the case but in a loud voice, I was found guilty on all counts, and I got convicted. When I was found guilty, you know, I was like, wow, it took all the wind out of me. Like, I was like, wow, these guys, you know, was, you know, I thought I was good. Next thing you know, I'm found guilty, and then I had to go get sentenced. When I came back for sentencing, I hired the ex head of probation to represent me on my pre-sentence report. She did a report for me to the judge. She told me the most time I could get would be 15 years. Somehow I got 21 years. She said she's never seen anything like it. They hit me with stuff, enhancements at sentencing that I was not even charged with. And here's the best part. After we did it, the kid who cooperated was scared and I said, here, keep my money. I don't need any money, I just did it for you. I let him keep the money, so I didn't make a penny. And he told and got less than five years. And it was all his idea, it was his job, it was his brother that he was selling drugs to. All I did was go along with it after he called me about 15 times asking me to help him. And like I said, yeah, I take full responsibility because I was using drugs at the time. And I said, okay, it's better than buying it. I'll just rob this kid. Yeah, they threw everything at me They named me the leader, organizer, boss of the operation. They hit me with brandishing a weapon, even though I had no gun. The First Circuit Court of Appeals said that they have great confidence in the American jury system and their belief that they could forget what they heard. Anyways, I got convicted. I got sentenced to 21 years in federal prison for sitting in a car while a friend of mine ran away with drugs bank robbers, murderers, pedophiles, rapists. I had guys who had three bodies, I had three kilos of cocaine, three conspiracies to commit murder, killing people from New York Got 15 years. And here I am doing 21 years, more time than all of those people I just named, all those crimes, because I would not tell and I kept my mouth shut. Everything in their power to try to get me to name people and, and tell on people. But when I wouldn't, they just threw the book at me. And like I said, those other people, pedophiles, rapists, murderers, all got less time than me. So I walked out of that courtroom. I got 252 months. I'll never forget it. I had my shoulders back, chin up. I walked out of there like a Marine. I was not going to show weakness, but inside I was so mad. When I got to prison in 2006, I had a chip on my shoulder. I'll never forget it. I sent a message. It was that mail call. Somebody picked up my newspaper and was reading it without my permission, and I knocked him out. And trouble was no stranger to me. I spent over three and a half years in solitary confinement in prison, they have what is cars. We recognized Massachusetts guys as the Boston car. And I was putting the Boston car in jeopardy because we all rolled together and guys that had nothing to do with the trouble I was starting could have been seriously hurt or injured if something went down in front of them because they have to jump in if I get jumped. For the first few years I was away, I was getting in all sorts of chaos and trouble. And I was into everything. I had my hooks into everything. I put a lot of guys in jeopardy. My family was upset with me because they knew I was getting in trouble. They wouldn't hear from me for months at a time because I'd be in solitary confinement. And that's a six by 10 cell, steel and concrete. You get fed through a slot in the door. You're in 24 hour lockdown in this tiny little room. If you're claustrophobic, you're screwed. I was spending a lot of time in there because of trouble, and I wouldn't be able to use the phone to call my kids, and everybody got upset with me and sick of me and the way I was acting, and people lost contact with me, my friends from the outside world that were supporting me and helping me financially fell off the map probably in year three or four, so I was on my own, basically the only one who had my back from the street was my mother. And I know I was disappointing her. And I hit rock bottom around 2009. I went to solitary confinement because I had a card game and I threatened to hurt somebody. And they went running to SIS, which is Institution Security Police. They put me on solitary confinement It's called Segregated Housing Unit. That's the whole 6 by 10 cell I was just describing, and they put me in there indefinitely to the guy I threatened left the prison. And while I was in solitary confinement is when I had, like, an awakening. I call it a spiritual awakening where I had hit rock bottom, and I said, I'm either going to end my life in here or I'm going to continue and go down a different path. And I chose to continue and go down a different path because I would never commit suicide. So. When I got out of solitary confinement is where I started my road to redemption. When I was in solitary confinement, I started writing my masterpiece novel, Infinity Crew. I put this book together in solitary confinement. I wrote the entire outline because I was going to be in there for six months. And like I said, I changed my life. I did a 180. I made an ethical choice to become a better person so when I got out of solitary confinement back in 2009, 2010, I volunteered and took care of sick and terminally ill inmates at the prison I was at, which was FCI Loretto in Pennsylvania. I also took 55 educational courses, I took college correspondence courses, I became a paralegal, I helped a couple people get out of prison, including myself in 2019. I was doing the right thing. I was taking college courses. I just completely changed because I had enough of that life. And an old-time wise guy, before I went to solitary, he said, why don't you become somebody your kids in society can be proud of? Do something with your life. You're so smart. And he goes, I hear you speak. And he goes, you're not a dummy. You're smart. Do something with your life. And it, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I was in solitary confinement. But solely with a positive mindset, I started rising from the ashes. I had this one guy who was taken care of from West Virginia. I took care of him till three days before he died. The warden of FCI Loretto came up to me and said, you are amazing. This guy was talking about, as he was dying, and wanted me to make sure I came to your room and thanked you for him. You took such good care of him. And it blew me away, because you know here I am taking care of a guy that just died and they're coming to me thanking me for him. And I was like, wow, this is good. I felt good about myself. So when I became camp eligible, I took the ward up on his offer of sending me wherever I want to go, because that's what he said. I'll send you wherever you want to go. So I transferred closer to home to Fort Devens in Massachusetts so I could be close to my mom. And over there, they had a dog program. I trained service dogs for the handicap in a program called NEADS, N-E-A-D-S. I got into dog handling because I always loved dogs and they had this program at the prison. I actually had a dog from 12 weeks old live with me in my cell till he was 13 months old. It was like the greatest experience ever. He was my therapy dog too. Graduated three service dogs. I taught these dogs 57 commands opening doors for the handicapped going into refrigerators and getting cans of coke opening bathroom doors shutting bathroom doors putting on lights walking without leash right next to you recall you know wherever the dog was and the handler needed them he would call their name and they would come immediately so the list is endless one of the dogs graduated went to a hospital one went to a courtroom for troubled teens that were testifying and the third dog went to a PTSD person who was in the war. So like I said, I was giving back. I changed. I did an ethical reset. I did a 180 and then I transferred from Devon's in Massachusetts to Berlin, New Hampshire, to another prison. 2016, my mother had a stroke. It was a rare stroke, went through her spine from the waist down. She was paralyzed and I started working on my case. They had state-of-the-art library up there. I found a loophole in prison reform. When Trump signed prison reform, there was a loophole that said, if you try to get a compassionate release and the warden denies you, you can now go to federal court. So I filed a compassionate release with the warden of Berlin Institution up in New Hampshire. He denied me, Rubber Stamp denied me in 30 days. And then I went to federal court so I put a compassionate release motion in and I actually won and I was the first one in the United States to win a compassionate release to go home and take care of a parent and the reason the judge let me out is because he saw my extraordinary rehabilitation and all the stuff I had done it was 10 years of it by then and everything I did was not to get out of prison because I had no idea prison reform was gonna hit and the the rules and the law was gonna change. I just did this to become a better person. And because I became a better person, the universe rewarded me. I put all that positive energy, good vibes into the universe and the law of attraction came back and helped me. And I got out of prison two years early. And I now, to this day, still take care of my mother. I'm showing her a much better quality of life. Before me, she was stuck in the house 24 seven. Now I take her out to the casino to see her brother. I take her to family events, showing her a much better quality of life. I had built my relationship back up with my daughters from when I got out. She was my hardest conquest because, you know, she was a state trooper now. She had me under her magnifying glass. And she was so delighted and so happy to see the change in me and how I, like, evolved as a person, as a man that she welcomed it with open arms and we became extremely, extremely close. I was her most trusted confidant. I was the only one who had a key to her apartment. We talked every day. She was stationed in the town I live in. She would come by my house almost every night. I would cook for her, I would make her juice drinks because I juice, I'm vegan and I do a lot of juicing. And our relationship was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I thank God for that every day, because had I not got out on that compassionate release, I would have never rebuilt my relationship with my daughter. It's the one thing in my life that I've done 100% that I have no regrets with. Last March, it was four o'clock in the morning and my phone rang and I answered the phone and they said, Anthony Booch, and I said, yeah. And they said, uh, state police, can we talk to you? And I said, am I under arrest? And they said, no. And then I said, i got nothing to say to you then. I have a lawyer. And they said, it's not like that. It's about your daughter. So I was like, holy shit. So I said, yeah. So I buzzed them in. They came up two flights from where I live. They turned the corner. the Three cops had their head facing straight down. They wouldn't look at me. And I was like, where's my daughter? Where's my baby? And they wouldn't look at me. And I knew. That was the hardest day of my life. She pulled over to assist somebody at the side of the road. and. Gasoline truck hit her and killed her. So the last year of my life has been brutal. It's been like the worst year of my life. Getting 21 year prison sentence, three years in solitary confinement. None of that is even close to losing your child. You know, it's killing me. It's really, really hard. But what I did do was I started a foundation. It's called the Tama Buchi Foundation and I'm raising money. I have it online, I have a website, Tamabuchi Foundation, and I'm trying to raise money to build a park in my daughter's honor so she will not be forgotten. Parents' worst nightmare is losing a child, but also like my daughter gave her life for the community, for people. So I don't want her ever to be forgotten. So I want to build a park, a beautiful park because she was in unbelievable shape. So it would be a fitness area, a place for kids she loved kids and she adored dogs so I would have a dog park there too it would be like three in one I'm going to put a mural with her picture on it and a big plaque and just things so she will never be forgotten and you know it'll affect the community because it'll give kids and people a place to go to when they honor her you know just being there it'd be an honor and place for me to go so like I said I built the website and if you want to go look at the website it's tamabuchifoundation.com, and you can read about it and donate if you can because you know i am also helping people with mental health counseling from families with tragedies because it took me 18 days to get counseling and i was a disaster when they told me they put me to my knees like i said it's, it's been the hardest year of my life every day is a struggle. My daughter's funeral was epic. Over 5,000 police were there, marching through there to honor her. It was like, all across the country, people sent sorrow and messages and flowers. and It was like unbelievable. Like it was a great tribute to a great woman who lost her life in the line of duty. It was breathtaking, like, what they did for her, as far as the show of support, the show, the show of camaraderie. that, like, like, they really, really took care of their own. I have to give it to them. They guarded my ex-wife's house from the time of the accident till after the funeral. For five days, they stood They had a car in front of her house. And every hour or two, they would knock on the door. Do you need anything? Do you need anything? Do you need anything? Like, it was amazing. And then same thing at the wake, the funeral, everybody was unbelievable. So when I got out of prison, when I first got out in 2019, I was under home arrest for a year. Well, let me back up. I authored the motion to get myself out of prison and it went to federal court federal judge wrote me and said that oh, I can get a court in lawyer. So I wrote a letter to a friend of mine who was an attorney. She was willing to help me. Her name was Allison Corey. I had met her on visits. We would discuss the law. She was visiting a friend of mine and my friend told her about me and how I, you know, became a paralegal. So we ended up hitting it off and becoming friends and she would actually come up to visit me in prison and asked me advice on cases she was doing because I had the insight of somebody who has already been through the system. So I already had a good rapport with her. I wrote her and asked her if she would represent me. She doctored my motion up, fixed it up, resubmitted it. She argued on October 7, 2019, and I won an immediate release. I was thrust back into society like not prepared at all, like with no rehabilitation, nothing. I had already been down in prison for like 14 years and they just threw me out the door. So what the judge did is he put me into home confinement for a year so I could recompress and, you know, get used to society. And when I was in home confinement, I finished the book Infinity Crew and I did my own publishing, convicted publishing. And I published it and it went on Amazon. October 7th of 2020. It took me one year to finish the book and get it published and up for sale. The day I had my motion to go in front of the judge and be heard, the judge ruled for an immediate release. It was the most amazing day of my life. It was like, wow, I'm actually leaving. They sent me back to the prison to get my stuff, to say goodbye to people. Everybody was so happy, I was up in Berlin, New Hampshire, hugging me and you know saying, "Don't forget me," and I got you know wrote everybody's numbers down and all that, and I'll never forget it because the whole way they had a town driver drive me home to Massachusetts from New Hampshire, almost near the Canadian border. It rained, it poured you couldn't see twenty feet in front of you as soon as I hit Massachusetts. The rain stopped, and it got sunny. It was like the most amazing day. And then I went to my mom's house and my whole family was there. My kids, my cousins, it was like epic. It was like the best day. And it was amazing. I became vegan when I was in prison. I started reading up on it. Then I got out and, you know, I was in home confinement and I was on a dating site. And I actually met my current woman on the dating site. She was vegan and we dated November 2nd, 2019, and you know, it's something I wanted anyways because, to be honest, we stopped eating meat and I was pretty much done with meat in prison. I became mostly pescatarian at the end because the meat they were feeding us at a dollar something a day to feed us was garbage. It was like 10 years old, so... Yeah, my friend was in the kitchen, he was a cook, and he said, look at the date on this. And I actually, in 2007, I'm looking at this meat from Desert Storm, and I'm like, oh my God, like this stuff is decades old, and they're feeding us this. So that was the end for me.
1: Well, you know, it's the saying that uh, the reason they shouldn't let a warden decide whether or not you get out of jail, because it's all about money, and prisons are big money machines, and you're the product. And there's no money in letting you out of jail. Like there's no money in feeding you meat that was uh, slaughtered this year. You know what I mean? It's a big, scam, nasty trap that you get into, and that's what it is.
0: Prison, like big farmers, big business.
1: That's all it is. Yep. So I'm glad they got like a, a third party to justly discern whether or not you should even be in jail.
0: Yeah. You know what
1: I mean? yep. If they had that on the front end, you'd have never got 21 years.
0: I got sentence right when the war on drugs was going on, and, and I became a casualty of war. But to be honest with you, I needed a harsh sentence to change and do my 180 and become a better man and a better person because if I had gone another like 41 months five year sentence wasn't enough for a guy like me I needed to be shook and I got shook to the core
1: I guess God gives you what you need you know it seems like you you'd have got it in
0: 15 (laughs) exactly I would have got it in 12 (laughs) no less no less though in my book I actually thank the prosecutor and the agents that investigated me because like I said I needed a stiff sentence to smarten up or otherwise I could probably be dead or doing life in prison. So if anybody wants to get a hold of me, I am the convicted vegan Instagram. I am Anthony J Bucci on Facebook. I'm available. You can DM me, especially if you're in a dark place. I've helped a lot of people that have listened to podcasts I've done. I've been on IHOT Radio, I've been on WMEX, bunch of different radio shows. I've been a featured speaker on Clubhouse, probably done two dozen podcasts. And once in a while, somebody will DM me because they're in a bad place. And I am a life coach too. So if anybody needs to talk or is going through something, just DM me, say hello, and uh, if I can help you, I will. And uh, anybody that's listening, love ya. It's been a pleasure being on this show. William Crooks, you're an awesome guy. I appreciate you.
1: Well, the future's bright ahead, man. I can't wait to see what happens.
0: Nice. I can't either.